Uh, again, remember where we are, we're not doing uh, our normal sermon series where we walk through a book of the Bible expositionally. We're doing a topical series on love. So that means that you might be having to flip through uh, your Bibles a little bit more, but also we're going to try to have the verses on the screen if you feel like you're not quite the quick draw, you won't be able to get to the verses that you want to get to in time. Okay. Now, you remember we, uh, we said that we're going to break these sermons up into loving God and loving your neighbor. The first two sermons we did were on loving God, uh, why should you love God, and then how should you love God. And now we're on uh, love thy neighbor. We did uh, why you should love your neighbor, because it's not immediately obvious to everyone why God commands us to do that. And this week we're going to be talking about how you love your neighbor. Now, in order to even begin to have this conversation, we have to figure out who our neighbor is, okay? Now, there's a lot of work that I could do in the Bible to try to show you who our neighbor is. Part of the reason why we read uh, the parable that we read this morning was to help address that. But because of the, the coronavirus and our attempt to have condensed sermons, this is going to be an attempt at a condensed, uh, excuse me, condensed services. This is going to be an attempt to have a condensed sermon. So I'm not going to do all that this morning. I'm just going to tell you who your neighbor is, and if you have any questions about where I get that from biblically, you just come and talk to me and we'll, we'll work through it, okay? Uh, in one sense, your neighbor is anyone and everyone that you come into contact with, okay? So most obviously, that would be the person who literally lives right next door to you as your neighbor. Now, you know, 50 years ago, that would have been someone you came into contact with more often than a lot of other people. These days, we live fairly isolated from our neighbors, and you may live next to someone for the next 20 years and not even know their name. They're still your neighbor. Your neighbor also includes your immediate family. So when God tells you to love your neighbor, he means love your wife, love your children. Your neighbors are also the members of this church, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that this morning. Your neighbor is also the cashier that you see at Walmart or Publix, depending on where you go. Uh, and your neighbor is your favorite waitress at your favorite restaurant, the one where you know each other's name, and when you walk in, she doesn't have to ask you what you're going to order because, well, she just knows. For me at Buffalo Wild Wings, they, have the, they drop the chicken wings as soon as they see me walking in the door, okay? But the category of neighbor encompasses more than just the people that you happen to come into contact with in your kind of sanitized bubble of a life. Okay, so that means that your neighbors also include people that you probably don't spend a lot of time talking with, interacting with, spending time with, hanging out with, like the homeless man who comes in the door of the church on a Wednesday night here asking for food. He's your neighbor. This includes the gay couple that just moved in down the street. They're your neighbor. This includes your coworker who's mid-transition and who has recently asked you to start referring to him as a her and to start using a new female name. This refers to that Muslim family from India that just moved in down the street and you've seen them at the park recently and their daughters are wearing those things on their head and you're not really quite so sure what to think about that because this is Decatur, Alabama. Your neighbor includes the drug addict who knocks on your door at 2 a.m. asking for a ride down to the Crystals. Is that just me? Oh. Okay. So, Sean, you're saying that everyone is my neighbor? Yeah, 
I'm saying that everyone is your neighbor. Now, if we were in a, a Sunday school class or if I had a longer sermon, I'd probably add some more nuance to that. But I think that's basically right. Now, the idea that everyone that you come into contact with is your neighbor, which means that you are obligated to love them, that can feel a little overwhelming. So what I'm going to do is I want us to break the category of neighbor down into two separate categories. I want you to think about your neighbor first in terms of the church, God's people, and then I want you to think about your neighbor in terms of the world. So those who are inside the church, those who are outside the church. Uh, This week's sermon was supposed to be my last sermon in this series, and it was supposed to be on how to love your neighbor, but because we're breaking it up like this, I'm going to add another sermon next week. So this week's sermon is all about how to love your neighbors inside the church. Next week's sermon is going to be all about how to love your neighbors outside of the church. Are y'all tracking with me? Good. Now, you may be wondering why I've chosen to break it down in this way. Why? I mean, there's a thousand different ways you can break down who's your neighbor. We live in the age of identity politics, right? We can break it down based on race, on gender, on income, on whatever. Uh, I've chosen to do it this way because I think that the Bible uh, gives us this kind of general emphasis. And there's there's a couple different ways that I could show you that from the Bible, but again, condensed sermon. So I just want to show you one text that would lead me to want to break it down like this. It's Galatians 6.10, okay? Should have it up on the board, yeah. Galatians 6.10. Paul says, so then... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That household of faith is just another way to refer to the church. Now, we know from the teachings of Scripture that we have to love all men and all women as ourselves, okay? But we also learn from verses like this verse that there has to be a kind of prioritization of our love. I mean, if you stop and you think about what love is, it's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling that you have in, deep down in your heart for someone, right? It's, it, it, love is actually giving of yourself for the sake of another. Well, that means that there has to be some prioritization because you can't give all of yourself to everyone all of the time. You have to start somewhere with someone in particular and prioritize them over someone else. Married people, you make that decision every day. You prioritize your wife over everyone else in the world. If you have kids, you prioritize them over all the other children in the world. There has to be some kind of prioritization. And what we see Paul saying to the Galatians here is like, yeah, as if in God's providence you have an opportunity to bless this person and to serve that person and to love this person, you should definitely do it. But make sure that you prioritize love for the church first. Serving the church first first. Now, uh, you have to be a little careful here because when you, when you talk about loving the church first, uh, what that can lead to is very obviously loving the church only and having a co- kind of cloistered Christianity and insulated Christianity where kind of all the horses are facing inward at the trough and nobody's facing outward and And that has happened at various times in church history, and I'm sure that there are churches in our own city that live like that, and if we're not careful, that can happen to us. But just because we have to be careful about something doesn't mean it's not still true. Okay? Now, there's a lot that we could say about loving one another in the church. A massive chunk of the New Testament, like percentage-wise, is concerned with 
this very theme, helping Christians to love one another well in the life of the church, how to get along. But we can't talk about everything that the Bible says about that, so we're going to narrow the focus. We're going to talk about one aspect, just one little old aspect of how to love your neighbors in the church well. We're going to talk about forbearance. So let me pray, and then I'm going to dive into that. Father, because of sin, we know that loving people the way that we're supposed to is incredibly difficult. But we know that your word uh, can help us. It can, it can show us our own sins and deficiencies and selfishness and the way that we love ourselves more than we should. And it can show us the wisdom and the path of wisdom for loving others as well as we ought to. So Father, help us to have hearts that are receptive to what you have to say to us this morning as you challenge us with your word, as you rebuke us with your word, as you encourage us and strengthen us and give us more knowledge with your word. Help us to receive it, God. Amen. Okay. Do you guys know about the Facebook prophet? This isn't one person, per se. The the Facebook prophet is the guy who's always on Facebook or Twitter, I guess whatever the kids are on these days, and they're always talking about everything that's wrong with the church in America today. Everything's wrong, nothing is right, and that's kind of like their personal ministry, you know. And most of the time when I meet the Facebook prophet in real life, I find out that they have no actual ministry in real life, that's why they spend so much time on Facebook, right? Shouting into the void, does anyone hear me? Now, one of the things about the Facebook prophet Uh, that they love to say is we need to get back to the way the church was in the New Testament. The church today has no power. The church in the New Testament was full of power. We need to get back to that. And whenever I hear someone say that, or whenever I read someone say that, I know a couple of things. Number one, I know that they're not actually involved in any real life ministry because real ministry with real people who have real sins is always messy and it's never going to look like miracle after miracle after miracle. You know, everyone just singing kumbaya around a fire all the time. It's just not going to happen. I don't care who you are. And he, by the way, if you ever visit a church and that's the image that they project and portray, you need to get out of there because it's probably a cult, not a real church. The second thing that I know is that they just don't know their Bibles very well. Like, at all. These Facebook prophets, they love to point to verses like the verses we're going to read together now in Acts chapter 2 and they need they say this is what we need to get back to come on now look at the new testament church i'm not seeing this we read and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I mean, you can see why the Facebook prophet feels good about his message, right? Who wouldn't want to get back to that? Who wouldn't want that for the life of their church? Who wouldn't want that to be our all-day, every-day 
experience of what it's like to follow Jesus. But if you keep reading the book of Acts, you get to Acts chapter 6, which by the way, I know you're like, four chapters, that must have been forever. No, it's like back to back, okay? In the same time frame. It says this in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, and that's referring to the days of Acts chapter 2, the disciples were increasing in number. See, there's that language from Acts 2. They're adding to their number every day. A complaint by the Hellenists, that's the Greek-speaking Jews and the greek culture Jews, arose against the Hebrews, that's the more Jewish Jews, right? Okay, you tracking? All right. Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the early church had a ministry of taking care of widows because widows were uh, exceedingly and normally poor because they didn't have anyone to care for them and usually it was a burden on their family so the church stepped in to fill that void. And what you see here is that some of the Greek uh, widows were, there was, there was ethnic hostility between the Greek widows and the Hebrew widows. And so some people weren't getting food. Some widows weren't being taken care of because of ethnic hostilities in the life of the local church. Does that sound like Acts chapter 2? Is that the, the picture of the perfect church that we need to get back to? What about the book of 1 Corinthians? I mean, we've been walking through that together for some time now on Wednesday nights. And what we've seen is that the church in Corinth, which was very certainly a real true church that had the Spirit of God, it was torn asunder by all different kinds of sin issues. There was factionalism. There was favoritism. There was sexual sin. Sexual sin of a kind that even pagans would look at it and go, oh, whoa. Greed, drunkenness, idolatry, abuse of the sacraments, Christians were suing each other, a lack of love, and the list could just go on and on. In the rest of the New Testament, you see the Galatians. Paul says to the Galatians, oh, you foolish Galatians, how quickly have you abandoned the gospel? What about the theological infighting between missionaries in Acts chapter 15? What about Paul and Barnabas splitting up, going separate ways because of arguments in the, about philosophy of ministry stuff? And what about this? What about that? And we could just keep going on and on. Friends, this picture of the New Testament church as a kind of spirit-laced utopia does not exist in the Bible. The early church was a church just like every other church. The Spirit of God was present, but so was sin. So things were great a lot of the time, and things were messed up a lot of the time. From ethnic hostility to gluttony and everything in between. We have Acts chapter 2 in our Bibles, yes, but we also have 1 Corinthians 13, which is a chapter all about love that needed to be written because Christians were not doing a good job of loving one another. Now, the point that I'm trying to get to here, what I want you to see is the church has always been a messy place. It's, it's never been easy for us to love one another in the life of the church. And God knows that. And so he gives us verses like these verses from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
Friends, Paul wrote these words to a church that was dealing with a lot. It had controversies of its own. Paul wrote this to the church of Ephesus. And Ephesus was a city that was, well, it was, it was going through a lot. Economically, there was a lot of turmoil, which was not helped at all by Paul coming along and preaching the gospel that kind of undermined some of the artisan uh, economy there that caused a riot when Paul was there. It was also a cosmopolitan city. And like uh, most cosmopolitan cities in the ancient world and in the modern world, it was a hot spot of civilization. And that's great. Civilization brings a lot of fun things. But it also brings a lot of different people from all different parts of the world with different backgrounds and different vices. You know, you think about New York, it's really the best of times and the worst of times all the time. It's kind of what Ephesus was like as a seaport city. Now, it was to this city that the gospel came. God saved the people from every walk of life in this city. And he gathered them together into something called a church. Now think about how difficult those early days must have been for the church in Ephesus. You have people from all different places, with all different economic backgrounds, with different experiences of the world, different social standings, different religious upbringings. I worship Artemis. Well, I worship so-and-so. And they're all gathered together trying to figure out how to be a family. And you know what? Being a dysfunctional family, like a completely dysfunctional family, it's, it's not an option. You have to strive for more. Jesus says in John 13, 35, he says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So as Christians, we can't ever just throw up our hand and say, you know what? Yeah, different people, different places, different economic, blah, blah, blah. You know, this is just the way it is. No, we have to strive to love one another well because there's something about the way that we love one another that preaches to the world. Paul spent three and a half years with these people as their shepherd. He knew what it was like to try and get all these different people with different tendencies and back to get them all to mesh and gel together. He knew how hard it was. And so five or six years later, as Paul sitting in a, a Roman prison, and thinking about his beloved churches, he's writing them letters. And one of the letters that he writes is to the church in Ephesus. And he's, as he's thinking about his beloved church, he's thinking about what he wants for them. He knows that one of the things that he wants for them is for them to love each other well. And so he writes the words that we just read. How do you love each other well? Well, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another. I don't particularly love the New Living Translation of the Bible, but I do like the plain English of the way that they translated that verse. Uh, listen, to it, listen to it said another way. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. And that seems like it just really strikes at the heart of what Paul is saying. So, we're going to look at each one of these aspects of what it looks like to love each other in the church for the rest of the sermon. So it, this is super late in the sermon to be presenting like points. You can, if you're a note taker, you can consider these points, uh, but just know they're going to be rapid fire. It's not like I have a whole four point sermon coming. Okay. So uh, be humble, be gentle, be patient and bear with one another. I'll say them again as we go through them. Number one, be humble. 
Kendrick wrote a song about this. Wrong room? Okay. <laughs> All right. In trying to cap- capture the essence of what true biblical Christian, uh, excuse me, true biblical humility is, C.S. Lewis once said this. He said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. So humility isn't beating yourself up all the time, constantly bemoaning the fact that you're a terrible sinner, even though you are, right? True humility is not walking around with what I like to call the Eeyore syndrome, you know? Oh, woe is me, and I'm so terrible. I mean, it's probably true, but right, that's not, that's not what humility is. Humility is an outgrowth of love. Humility is what happens when you love other people so much that you're always thinking about them instead of yourself. And you and yourself, that just becomes an afterthought because that's not where your mental and spiritual energy is being invested. So a humble person, when they're wronged or inconvenienced in the church, they won't think first of the cost that they incur as they're being wronged or inconvenienced, but rather they think about what might be going on in the life of the person who wronged them or inconvenienced them. As a pastor, I experience this all the time. You know, uh, not, not all the time, but you know, if I feel like a member of the church, you know, one of the sheep gets a little snippy with me, right? My first instinct is to go, ah, oh, these people, they don't appreciate me, and you know, how dare you, I'm the pastor, and you know, sometimes I think that, but, uh, but, but really my first instinct, as a, it should be as a good shepherd, is to go, huh, I wonder if everything's okay with them. They don't usually act like that. What's going on there? Right? That would be, what a, that would be a humility, and it's not like contrived humility. It's just because I'm, I'm, I care about you, and I'm, I'm thinking, what would lead to this? You, you, you ask questions like, what sins might this person be struggling with? What family issues might they be going through? In what ways might they need to be challenged or encouraged or prayed for? Have you ever gotten really bad service at a restaurant before? You know, like, like really bad service? I remember one time me and Amber were at uh, a restaurant and I asked the lady for some more ranch dressing because I have a problem. And uh, she just told me no. (laughs) And I was like, you can't do that. But she did. And she never brought me any ranch. Now, that's an example of really bad service. Now, when you get bad service at a restaurant, there there are a bunch of different options, but the main two are this. Number one is you get attitude, you demand to speak to the manager. You don't leave a tip. You know, you really try to teach them a lesson. That's what, I guess, in, 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 in the current zeitgeist, we call that being a Karen, you know? Yeah? So you can go full Karen on them. Or you can try to show grace, right? You recognize the bad service, but you still try to show grace. And most of the time when I'm in a situation like that uh, and I'm trying to show grace, one of the things that helps my heart is to just ask, I wonder what is going on with this person. I wonder what this server might be going through, right? And sometimes I'll even ask them. I'll be like, hey, is everything okay? You seem like you're, you're having not the best day. Can I help you with anything? And I cannot tell you how often I found it to be the case that when I just ask that question, my waiter or waitress will say something like, 
you know, I couldn't find a babysitter for my kid this morning, and now my 11-year-old son is at home alone, and I'm just really worried about him. Or I'm going through a divorce. Or I'm going to school full-time and trying to be a waiter full-time, and I just feel like I'm about to collapse, right? And this usually leads to an opportunity for me to build relationships, which leads to gospel opportunities and evangelism opportunities. But none of that would happen if in that instance when I'm getting poor service from my waiter or my waitress, the first thing I think about is myself and how I'm being wronged, how I'm being inconvenienced. But when, when, when in humility you think about the other person, good things happen. And disclaimer, I'm not great at this. I'm somebody who's practicing trying to get there. So, Now this same dynamic should be lived out in the life of the local church. Friends, you're going to be sinned against in the church. That's just going to happen. People are going to be petty. Someone's going to inconvenience you. Somebody's going to be selfish, and it's going to affect you in a particular way. Now, when that happens, you have two choices. You can teach them a lesson, or you can show them grace. And the only way that you can show them grace is if you have true humility, where when you're sinned against, when you're inconvenienced, you don't think about yourself first, You think about them and what they may need and how you can serve them. Is that not what Jesus did for us? When you think about the gospel and the way that we sinned against God, the way that we rebelled against Him, did much more than just minorly inconvenience Him, He didn't think about Himself first, but rather He divested Himself. He emptied Himself and came down to be with us. And He took the cost in order to love us and to serve us. And he showed us when he did that what true humility looks like. Number two, be gentle. A violent wind will destroy a ship, but a gentle wind will boost the ship's ability to travel without having to row. That's an illustration that might have been better a couple hundred years ago, but you get the picture, right? Hard rain can destroy a crop but gentle rain gives life. The problem isn't the rain, it's the force of the rain as it falls. Proverbs 15.4 says that a gentle tongue is like a tree of life. Paul tells Timothy, he says, don't be violent, be gentle. Don't be like the wind that shipwrecks the boat, be like the wind that gives sail to the boat. Later in that same letter, Paul tells Timothy, his beloved son in the faith, the man that he's kind of training up to pass the baton onto, he says, he says this. Okay, I don't have it there. What happened? 1 Timothy 6.11. Is it up there, Mike? I pulled a Sean, guys. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Nope. Next. Nope. We'll stick with that one, though, okay? This is a good one, too. (laughs) I'm going to read it off the board with you. Hey, Spencer, you look embarrassed for me. Don't be embarrassed for me. I'm not embarrassed. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Right? With gentleness. We once, we once had a man in our church who uh, kind of prided himself for being the one who was always willing to step up and tell it like it is. You know, he saw himself in the line of the prophets, a real whip cracker and table flipper. 
Everyone else just needs to stop being so sensitive. That's the problem. Everyone's just so sensitive these days. Let me be clear, I do think people are too sensitive these days. But when you look at these words, Paul, you know, do, were people too sensitive back in Paul's day? When he said these words, when he said, with gentleness, correct your opponents? Why? Well, Paul says that perhaps God may grant them repentance. You see, what you have here is the perfect balance of your responsibility and God's sovereignty. There's something about the way that I can communicate truth to you that if I'm not gentle enough, you won't hear me. But if I am gentle enough, God may use my words to show you your error and help you to correct and to become more holy. Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus describes himself the table flipper and whip cracker extraordinaire. He describes himself like this. I am gentle and lowly in heart. If we are harsh with one another, brothers and sisters, if we are violent with one another, if we are overly forceful, we will destroy one another. But if we are gentle with one another, we can be agents of sanctification in each other's lives. Now, before moving on, uh, I just want to address the men in the room. Uh, hey, this is for you. I know that there's a brand of masculinity that's being championed in many evangelical churches right now that says that in order to be a real man, a man's man, you can't be a gentleman. And they don't say that, but they say that in so many words. And friends, I'm, I'm here to tell you that that's just not true. Gentleness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Our Lord and Savior was the perfect man, the most masculine man that's ever lived, and he describes himself as a gentleman. Because of that, I strive to be more gentle. I, try, I strive to communicate more gently, to even carry myself in a more gentle fashion. Sometimes even my physical posture cannot appear to be too gentle. Hey, if you want to know exactly what that looks like, I just want to hold up uh, my brother and fellow elder Grant Miller to you as an example in the life of the church of what gentleness looks like. When you think about somebody who's going to be a, uh, the wind that's too strong that shipwrecks the boat, sometimes that can be me. When you think about somebody who's just going to put wind in your sails so that you can travel even further, that is Grant. So brothers in the church, if you're thinking, man, what does it look like to be gentle like Jesus is calling me to be gentle? What does that look like? Look at Grant. Imitate him in his life as he follows Jesus. Number three, be patient. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says that love is patient. Patience recognizes that the Holy Spirit works on different people in different ways at different times with different speeds. In this church, one of the things that we want to just be normal in the culture of our church is the concept of gospel safety time. The gospel says that you are more messed up than you could ever imagine, but that you're also more loved than you could ever imagine. The gospel calls you to commitment to one another in the life of the church in the same way that God is committed to you despite your sin. Now what that commitment does and what the, that truth of the gospel does is it should create an atmosphere of safety where in this church we can be free to take the masks off. We don't have to be hypocrites. We can walk around and we can be who we are. 
we can confess our sins to one another, not fearing reprisals, not fearing that we're going to be looked upon in a negative light. We can just be honest with each other because this is a safe environment. Now what that safety does over time is completely transform the church. But you have to have time for these things to work. If you have an environment of gospel safety and you expect that gospel safety to change people immediately, you will be sorely disappointed because that's not the way that sanctification works. If you were to put every member of our church on a graph and just kind of like chart out the rate of our sanctification, it would all be very different. It would even be different depending on where you are in your salvation. You know, everyone when they first get saved, you know, a little bit of a slowdown, a little bit of a pickup. We're all on our own journey and following the Lord Jesus, and His Spirit is working in our lives at His own pace according to His own good purposes. And patience says that I will eat the cost relationally because I know that something better is coming. It says I don't have to demand change in you right now because I trust that the Spirit is sovereign over the rate of change in your life in the same way that He's sovereign over the rate of change in my life. Uh, If you want to know what it looks like to be patient, you don't have to look any further than the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the gospel you see God's patience extended towards us. Let me give you a concrete example of this from Scripture. Consider the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul was writing to Timothy, and he described himself like this. He said, uh, formerly, we got it up there, Mike? Yeah, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent of God, of the gospel, of the church. Blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. If anyone deserved what was coming to him, it was Paul. But God didn't give him what he deserved. Why? Why didn't he give him exactly what he deserved right when he deserved it, the first time he did something negative or harmful to the church? Well, if you keep reading in 1 Timothy, same chapter, verse 16, it says, but I received mercy. Right? God didn't give me what I deserved. Why didn't God give me what I deserved? Well, for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, and he means as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. You see, in not giving Paul what he deserved right when he deserved it, God put his patience on display to the church, to Satan, to the, the, the heavenly hosts. Okay, so now think about your own life. Think about the ways that you have sinned against God. Even after he saved you, after he's loved you and cared for you, after he's been so exceedingly kind to you, think about the ways that you've sinned against God. Now think about what that means for what you deserve from God. Now think about the new mercies that he's given you every day. Think about the patience that he has extended to you in the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Now when you think about that, what emotional response does that create in you? I deserve this and I deserve it now, but God gives me something better. Doesn't that... Doesn't that stir your affections for God? Doesn't that make you love God more considering how exceedingly kind He's been to you? Well, in the same thing, in the life of the church, you experience this phenomenon. 
right? In the life of the church, we always have the opportunity to be impatient with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to give them what they deserve, right, when they deserve it. But what if you're patient? What if you trust that the Holy Spirit is going to, to, to work out that little quirk or that sinful tendency in them? What if you trust that God's going to convict them of this sin, sin at some point? Maybe not today. Maybe not with you. Maybe it'll happen 10 years down, from the, down the road. What if you just trust that that's real? What do you think that that will do for us relationally in the life of the church? How will that strengthen the bonds of our love for one another? And I do want to be clear that when we talk about patience, we're not talking about patience like the world has patience. We're talking about patience that is full of hope because we believe that there's not one single person who is in Christ who is not promised the gift of sanctification. Everyone is growing increasingly holy. And we can bank on that and be patient with one another. Now, listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or if you're here this morning and you call yourself a Christian, but it hasn't really meant anything for your life, it hasn't really changed anything, you're, you're basically just kind of living how you would live anyways, and you're just happy to have Christian be another label that you would add to yourself. You know, I'm a mom, I'm a nurse, and I'm a Christian. I would encourage you not to bank all of your hope in God's patience that you will be here tomorrow to repent. That God's going to give you more time. That there's always going to be another opportunity for you to get right with God. God is a very patient judge. He holds the gavel high in the air as he preaches and calls all men back unto himself. He holds the doors of heaven wide open as he holds the gavel in the air. But he is a righteous judge who will carry out his justice. And one day the gavel will fall. For your own life, that gavel will fall for you the second your heart stops beating. And I know that you think that you have another heartbeat. But another heartbeat is not promised. But God's grace is promised to you right here, right now. So turn from your sins and trust in Christ who has been so patient with you thus far. Number four, our final point, forbearance. Or bear with one another. I'm going to tell you a story about my neighbor. I'm going to tell you a story about something that happened with my neighbor this week. I was driving down the road a little faster than he thought was appropriate. I wasn't speeding. It's my neighborhood, too. My kids play in the road. I wasn't going crazy. It was just a little faster than he thought was appropriate. There were some guys out cutting some trees in his yard. And he's never going to hear this sermon, by the way. So I'm, I'm going to just <laughs> tell you exactly what happened. Uh, and he started yelling at me as I drove by. And so I stopped and I turned around and I went back and uh, he started walking away from me, you know. Might have looked a little intimidating. I kind of had to like stop and recalibrate and put on my pastor smile, you know. It's okay. And as I, <laughs> I'm not here to hurt you. Uh, and as I went to go talk to him, uh, he was just very hostile towards me. And so much so that I even just, I even just offered up a, a benign apology, you know. Hey, man, listen, I'm sorry for whatever, you know. Like, okay, yeah, I was driving too fast. I said, hey, listen, man, you're my neighbor. Like, I don't, I don't want us to have friction with each other. We have to live on the same street. And he just was not having it. He, he didn't receive it very well. Uh, 
I think he was still in that flight response. So uh, I, I said, okay, I'm going to wait a couple hours, and I'm going to come back tonight, and I'm going to knock on his door, and I'm going to try again, right? I could have just been like, ah, I tried, right? I'm going to come back, and I'm going to try again. Well, a couple hours later, I'm, I'm driving by his house, and I see that he's outside still working on the yard. I pull my truck over, and I try to talk to him. Hey, man, again, listen, dude, about earlier, I'm, I'm sorry. Hey, if I did anything, you know, please forgive me. I don't want it there to be, and he just completely uh, rejected it, okay? Just... Uh, hostile, cold, uh, yeah. Now, here's the thing. At the end of the day, I still have to live on the same street as this guy. I'm not moving because he got a bad attitude with me, and he's not moving because he, think, he thinks, you know, I, I broke the speed limit on the street. Uh, we still have to live on the same street together. At the end of the day, that coworker that you have friction with, you guys still have to work together. At the end of the day, if you've joined this church... You've committed to doing life together with the members of this body. And what that means is that we're going to have to bear with one another. Bearing with one another means being patient, humble, and gentle towards your fellow church members when they're not being patient, gentle, and humble towards you. What does it mean to bear with one another? It simply means that we must make allowances for each other's faults and weaknesses and quirkiness and sins. Friends, the Lord has told us to bear with one another in his word because we will always have to do it. There's never going to be a point where I preach so good and the community is so strong and we all understand the gospel so well that we just stop sinning against each other. And we stop having these weird little quirky tendencies that we have that can just get on each other's nerves. There will always be a reason for us to be frustrated with each other, to be bitter towards each other. But we have to bear with each other. Now, if you're thinking about, as I'm, as I'm, as I'm telling you this and you're thinking about it, if you're thinking about this person or that person in the life of the church, that like, you're like, oh man, I'm glad you said that because so-and-so, yeah, I'm, I'm really just going to have to bear with them. You're thinking about it the wrong way. And if you're thinking about somebody, I guarantee you that there are two people thinking about you. They're thinking about you're the one that they have to bear with them. I'm, Chance, I'm thinking about you, buddy. You know, you better not be thinking, hey, bro. <laughs> I love you, man. Instead of only thinking about how this teaching will help you bear with the unbearable members of the church, Maybe think about how this lesson will help other church members put up with you when you're the one who's being unbearable. Now let me also add that we don't bear with one another. I said this about uh, patience, but I want to say it uh, about bearing with one another. Uh, we don't bear with one another like the world does, right? Uh, like, like two passive-aggressive neighbors, or maybe aggressive-aggressive neighbors, I don't know. right? We bear with one another in hope. Because we believe that the Spirit is actively working on all of us, changing us to make us more like Jesus. So I don't bear with Dom if he sins against me or if he does something he's not supposed to do because I'm, I'm duty-bound to do it and I'm just going to tough it out. No, I, if I bear with Dom, I do so because I know that one day, whatever this thing is, the Lord's going to work that out of Dom's life or Dom's going to make progress on that. I really and truly believe that. You know, the other night, a brother in the church told me, uh, he said, Sean, you're really good at encouraging people. Like, man, you're, you've done a really good job. I, I, like, I've watched you 
it seems like you're just very good at that. Now listen, there are a whole host of people who knew me as a very young Christian. Spencer Miller can tell you stories if you want to hear stories. But 21, 22, just came out of the prosperity gospel, newly reformed, angry at everyone all the time. Uh, you know, I was the Facebook prophet, you know, I'm picking on myself. I was critical of everyone, and I never had a thought that I didn't express, and the most of them were like picking at people, right? Uh, people who knew me then would not believe you if you told them today that I had the gift of encouragement. If they would have heard what that brother said about me in the church, they'd have been like, Sean? Sean DeMars? Are we talking about, is there a different Sean DeMars? Well, what happened between 23 and 33? Well, for a decade, the Spirit was working on me. For a decade, God's Spirit was working that junk out of me and working in something better. A decade, not a day, not a month, not a year. You know, a lot of people had to bear with me throughout the course of that decade, Spencer being one of them. Now listen, I could spend an hour talking about the gifts that every member of this church has and the many ways that those various gifts build up the body of Christ. But I could also spend an hour, maybe five hours, talking about the attitudes, opinions, quirks, weaknesses, and sins that every single member of this church possesses, without exception. If we are not committed to bearing with one another, we won't make it. Now you'll notice here that Paul grounds this language of forbearance in something. He grounds it in love. I think the same thing is true of patience and humility and gentleness. All of this we're only able to do if we love one another. Said another way, these things are all expressions of our love for one another. Love is not, as I said earlier, a feeling. Most often in this world, love is an active commitment. Right? If I tell my wife, with whom I have two children, that I love her, but I won't actually commit myself to her and get married to her and you know, share tax burdens with her, or tax exemptions with her, the idea that I love her kind of rings hollow. Right? The same thing is true in the life of this church. Right? If you say that you love the body of Christ, but you don't actively commit to the body of Christ, is that love at all? Is that real? The concept of love, it's, it's esoteric. You know, It's out there in the clouds. And so the poet, you know, he loves to ask, what is love anyways? As if that's particularly profound. But brothers and sisters, this is love. This is boots on the ground, real world love in action. If you ask me what love is, I can give you the esoteric theological answer, or I can just tell you to come and join this church and observe these things happening on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. I can tell you about the atmosphere of Mars or you can go live in Mars and you can experience it for yourself. In the same way that we can see a concrete vision of love at the cross, we can see a concrete vision of love in these things being lived out in the life of the local church. So for all my visitors this morning, I want to encourage you. If you say that you love Jesus, what that has to mean in some way is that you love the things that he loves. 
And Jesus loves the church. And if you say that you love the church, if you say that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, but you're not committed to them, to doing these things with them, I just don't know that you really understand what that love is supposed to be. Now don't just take that as a conviction and do nothing with it. In the same way that like, if you realize that like, hey, that if you're a guy and you're in a relationship with this woman and you've been kind of stringing her on for eight years, always promising marriage, but never actually committing yourself to her, and someone calls you to the carpet over it, you shouldn't just go, oh, shucks, you're right. You should do the right thing. Either break up with her or marry her. The same thing is true with you in the church. Let's show the world what it looks like to love one another in the way that God has loved us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we are so heavily influenced by the world and their vision of what love is. We thank you that you've given us your word to help us redirect, to reshape our understanding of love. We pray that you would help us to not be only hearers of the word, but also doers. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.